Amen. Very good morning once again. I'm so glad to see you here. Especially welcome those of you who may be visitors in our midst. We're glad you've joined us. Uh, do know that we have a time of refreshments after the service. It's an opportunity not just to uh, get some physical sustenance, also to meet uh, new people and for people to get to know you and hopefully uh, you get to know them. And we always welcome you uh, in the name of the Lord if you want to be a part of this community. It's a wonderful time to let that happen. I've entitled my sermon this morning, Thirsty Again, because I'm going to be sharing from the passage which we've just heard from the gospel reading in John chapter 4. And you know, uh, the English language is very fluid, isn't it? Words can mean lots of things. Uh, you and I, those of us, our generation, when we say thirsty, we think of something like this, you know, the Coke commercial and <laughs> trying to entice you to drink because you're parched. Of course, we know Coke doesn't really quench thirst. It's not all that healthy for you. But nowadays, if you ever come across this meme and it says you're thirsty, it actually means something quite different. Uh, yesterday's congregation understood it a little bit better than us and I had to explain it uh, to them and they're like, tell us something new, you know. <laughs> but really, most of you here look uh, like you probably don't understand how this term is used. Let me read from... New York Times Magazine, an article uh, which gives a definition of how thirsty is used today. Thirsty in recent black and then internet slang describes a graceless need for approval, affection or attention. One so raw that it creeps people out. It calls to mind the panting tongues, bulging eyeballs, springing hearts and steaming, steam shooting ears of Looney Tune characters or those mewling, suggestive, desperate-to-please selfies that people post to social media to elicit precisely that cartoon wolf reaction, a type of image commonly called a thirst trap. Yeah, it's those things which make you click and uh, uh, want to find out more about that's called a thirst trap. And so thirst talks about this desperate need for attention, and in some sense, you know, it's, it's a negative connotation. Right, that you, you want a, a thirst for something that you shouldn't have. But it's not just current generation that understand thirst that way. If I said someone was thirsting for fame, or you thirst for power, or you thirst for praise, it's not often a very good uh, <laughs> thing that I'm saying about you. It's, it's criticism. But let's be honest, this is the human condition, isn't it? that there is a thirst deep inside us that we want quench. And that's precisely what we see when Jesus encounters the woman at the well. In verses 13 and 14, he said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Talking about the physical water at the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him or her a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. You know, it, it's from here we get the idea and the concept of living water. And I know in this church, Living Waters is a, <laughs> a group uh, that in, up to today still meets, right, Simon? <laughs> yeah, part of Living Waters. It's, uh, uh, I, I think you know that this movie coming out, Jesus Revolution, that was Singapore's version of Jesus Revolution, you know, this group of young people who are really uh, on fire, but I digress. Let's get on with the actual text at hand. And I want to look first and foremost about the reality of our natures that are thirsty. In verse 9, you know, after uh, having 
encountered Jesus and Jesus asking her for a drink, she says to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, is the parenthetical uh, comment that John makes. To explain that something was going on here that isn't uh, normal. Last week, we looked at the passage in John 3 where Jesus encountered Nicodemus, a leader of the Pharisees, uh, part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, religious council of the day. And, you know, Jesus meeting someone like that, there's nothing surprising about it, right? Meeting someone who is of a religious ilk, someone who is uh, well-respected in uh, uh, society on all, by all measures, But you see, Jesus didn't just seek out those who are at the top. He also sought those who may be forgotten by society. Think about this woman. Nicodemus, we know. He's named three times in the Gospels, I told you. You uh, But this woman up to today is called the woman at the well. That's all we know about her. Uh, An easily forgotten character, except for the fact that something profound takes place, and we'll unpack that. You know, firstly, she's part of a despised race. Samaritans were looked down upon by Jews because they were originally of Jewish ancestry, but they intermarried with the races around them. And the uh, result would be the, the way in which they went about their uh, religion and the worship became adulterated, became diluted by the other cultures. She was of a disadvantaged gender. Let's not make any bones about it. In fact, later on, the... Uh, um, text tells us, you know, the disciples were surprised he was talking to a woman. It just didn't happen. You know, a teacher didn't spend time teaching women. That was the society they were in. Jesus was countercultural on so many levels, having stopped to talk to her. But then also we read on later that she was a disgraced wife. Think about it, you know. She had five wives, uh, five husbands, and the one she was living with right now wasn't her husband. Uh, today, living in 21st century Singapore, 2023, you know, if a woman goes by and someone says, hey, he's been married five times there. <laughs> you know, everyone will start uh, whispering about it. In our society, I mean, as, as liberal as it's become, it's already cause for uh, question marks in people's minds. Can you imagine first century Palestine? What she must have been going through to get there, you know, But the clue which tells us how difficult her circumstance was is the detail that tells us that it was the sixth hour that Jesus was at the well. What is that? Sixth hour means it's 12 noon. I don't know about you. Uh, Singapore, we are urban society. Most of us live very sedentary lifestyles, so we need to exercise, right? So we don't do any manual labor like carrying water from a well. We just turn the tap on. But strenuous exercise, for most of us, we do it early morning, we do it late in the evening, right? When the sun's down and it's cooler in the day, I know some crazy young moths will be running out at noon. Lah. <laughs> but most of us don't do that. Same. You know, gathering water is strenuous. Anyway, you need the water in the morning for your day's activities. And then you come in the evening to collect again because you need to wash up before you go to bed. Why would she come at noon? Because 
the well would have been a place of social gathering, of meeting people, catching up on the latest gossip. For her, probably she would have been the substance of the gossip. She is the one subject uh, to the gossip in that sense. And for all intents and purposes, most commentators believe she didn't want to be there. Now talk about self-esteem issues and, you know, if anyone needed an International Women's Day, she did. <laughs> right? To uphold her and, and to show her her worth and to tell her she is worth something. And in some ways, you know, you think about it. Now, some people paint her with a brush, which I think is unfair in talking to her about a woman as loose morals. But in reality, in Jesus' day, women couldn't divorce their husbands. It's the husband who would divorce the wife. That was how it was done, right? You, the, the woman had no rights whatsoever. So in a sense, she was a victim each step of the way. But the fact that she agreed to marry again and again maybe tells us that she was trying very hard to find herself. Possibly she thought she could only find her worth in a relationship with a man. Or she was desperate because um, women couldn't own property. You know, it was an economic decision, and in that sense, she was certainly downtrodden. But no matter what, you know, in, in many ways, the allusion to this uh, prophecy by Jeremiah is uh, unmistakable. Where Jeremiah was warning the people, you have forsaken me because of these two evils you have done. Firstly, you've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And secondly, you have looked and hewn out cisterns for yourself. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is it any wonder that we are always thirsty? <laughs> because the means by which we try to quench our thirst are broken. They cannot contain the water that we need to keep us filled. We are not so different from her, in all honesty. Our circumstances may be different. But at the root, our motivations are very much the same. In fact, it's the similarity that runs all the way throughout history. You go right back to the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, which they were told not to take. When God came, as He did in the cool of the day, to meet with them, they hid. And when God called out, Adam, where are you? This was his reply. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now, nudity wasn't a problem. That was the way of life. They didn't have anything other than nudity. What he was talking about is, I'm laid bare. I realize that my sin cannot be hidden from you, God. I'm afraid, and I hide myself. That's human condition for most of us. But lest you think this is only a problem that uh, Christian, non-Christians struggle with, you know, I've talked about how sometimes you know, engaging in a religious or spiritual conversation makes people uncomfortable because you know, it, it's a topic which they'd rather not think about. But even uh, uh, Christians find a way to hide. Jesus told this story of the parable of the talents how one servant was given five, the other two, and the last one was given one. And this was the last one when he was asked, why didn't you do anything with that talent? Why did you 
not invest it? Why did you not make something uh, of it? His reply to the master was this, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. That it is fear that is at the root of so much of how we live our lives. That our motivations are so enmeshed with the fears that plague us, that plague the human heart. Whether it's fear of God or a fear that's born of not understanding who God is. The other two had no, they were serving the same master. It may well have been that this master's character is the same for all three. But the other two probably had a better understanding of who the master was. And they were not afraid to venture out and to risk and to try and make more of the talents which they were given. There's a book um, which I've referenced from time to time. Uh, it's a small book, Fear, Love and Worship, um, written decades ago by Bishop Fitzsimmons Allison, who was the Bishop of South Carolina in the U.S., uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tiny booklet, but well worth the read. I've checked, and you can actually get it on Amazon. It's just, it's not cheap. It's like 20 US dollars for a small booklet, but well worth the read. And I'm going to ex- uh, um, um, quote from him. Uh, this is an extended quote, so bear with me. He talks about the fears that grip the human heart. And he says this, We are afraid of being radically honest because it leads us to face many unpleasant matters about ourselves and our world. Matters that we usually hide and cover up. Or we may be afraid to care. Because we have learned that in caring deeply, we can be hurt deeply. We are afraid to be humble. Because we do not think we have the strength and the courage to risk the loss of face or the blow to our precious pride that the humble life demands. Our fear of failure causes us as parents, spouses, students, artists, to hedge or withdraw partially from many undertakings, even from life itself. Because if we really put ourselves into an enterprise that is criticized or fails, then we have been criticized and we fail. We are afraid of being human. Because being human means being free, and freedom creates the hand-wringing anxieties which attend making decisions, and the gnawing guilt which may accompany responsibility. We are afraid to love because to love really means leaving the safety of our solitary lives and exposing our hearts where they can be hurt and broken and softened. Finally, we share the mutual and common fear of death that pervades. More than most of us realize, all other fears, tying them together. That death just is underlying every fear that we have. Why? Because it haunts our lives and our endeavors with a threat of meaninglessness. Finally, shrouding everything we are and everything we do with the dark cloud of inevitable annihilation. These are the fears that make each of us an Adam hiding from God. That's our nature. But what the woman encountered was God's nature. And His nature is the God that gives. 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, in verse 15, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You know, and, and she was saying, Wow, you know, is there a way I can get away from having to meet the crowds, having to deal with the fear that I have? God understood, Jesus certainly understood, perfect love casts out all fear, is what the Bible tells us. And, you know, that's why we heard last week that famous verse, God so loved the world that He gave. That God gives. And this is what Jesus said to her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, who's the gift of God? God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Jesus Himself was the gift. He'd say, give me a drink. You would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. Skip on down to verse 14. Then He says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him or her a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That God desires to give to us. He's not a demander. We often think of him in that way, that God demands things of us. But God, at his very being and his very heartbeat, is one who gives, gives of himself freely to us. In verses 16 to 18, you know, he then continues with her. He says, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have, uh, now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. I don't know. It seems kind of harsh, right? Like, why are you poking <laughs> the wound? She's trying to hide. She's trying to find a way to get away from it. But all of a sudden, it's like God shines a spotlight on the very fear that she has, the root of that fear. You see, this is the nature of God's law. It's holy, righteous, and good. And it's a necessary part of understanding ourselves, coming to terms with who we are and what we are and what we struggle with you know, God's gracious dealing with us means that He does call us out. Again, uh, Bishop Fitz uh, says this in his book, God's love is not controlled by some heavenly cosmic valve that the angels open a little when we do something proper in worship. Everything we learn from Scripture and from Christ teaches us that the free flow of God's love is not blocked at His end, but ours. That the blockage to us receiving His love lies with us, not with Him. He is not reluctant to pour out His love. But we have a problem receiving that love. And when God points out the things that are in our life that block that flow, it's, it's a loving action. It's a gracious action. It's clearing the way for us to really receive His grace. But then the text goes on, interestingly. The woman then says to him, to Jesus, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, at first blush, you know, you think about it, it's like, wait a minute, this one thing doesn't have to do with the other. Are you trying to divert attention? 
you know, are you trying to um, deflect and, and try and get onto something else because it's uncomfortable talking about uh, her, her situation? You know, I don't think so, you know. Because you know how Jesus, in his interactions with people, he's never bothered by the question that is asked. His answer always gets to the heart of the matter. And Jesus didn't turn away from the question this woman was asking. And this question was the issue of worship. You know, she's asking the question, where should we worship? How should we go about in worship? What's the right way to worship? That is actually at the very heart of the matter. That's why Jesus says to her this, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, talking about the fact that Samaritans were a bit mixed up in their worship. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus himself is salvation, and he came from uh, that Jewish lineage. And, uh, uh, you know, he was pointing out to her, you've asked the wrong question about worship. Not that it's wrong for you to turn your attention to worship, because it's critical, it's crucial. You are more concerned about what is acceptable worship to God, as if worship is doing something for Him. Instead, Jesus says that's not the right way to approach worship. In verses 23 and 24, He says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. What does worshipping God in spirit and in truth mean? I'll unpack that right at the end. But needless to say, it's not about where you worship. It's not about how you worship. It's the fact that you need to come to Him exactly as you are and meet Him where you are. I switch back, you know, uh, uh, Bishop Fitz continues that same passage which I just read. He says, our hearts are hard and closed, not God's. Our worship should be directed toward removing the barriers between God's love and our fear. These barriers are nowhere but with us. It is not God who needs to be changed, right? We don't come here and suddenly change Him to become more you know, accepting of us in, when we offer ourselves out in worship. In worship, we're not doing something for Him, except in the sense that He desires us to cease hiding and respond to His love. The whole book, Fear, Love and Worship, Bishop Fitz is getting to the point. He says, you know, the, the way in which we solve our fears is by accessing perfect love, which casts out all fear. But the way we apply that love to our lives is through worship. It's coming into God's presence and understanding who He is and receiving all that He has for us. And when you receive that love, you cannot help but worship. You cannot help but respond to His loveliness, cannot help but respond to His grace that we have to stop hiding from God and respond to His love. You know how many of us hide, and I include myself in that category? We, as human beings, have this tendency to compartmentalize ourselves. When I've talked to you about worship, all of you, most of you, 
most of the time, this is how we think. Yeah, worship, all right. When I come 11 a.m. Sunday morning, let me worship God. Then 12.30, refreshment time. Worship over. <laughs> and then I carry on through the rest of the six and a half days. Right? Then I prepare myself for the weekend. Then I come and worship God. Worship is meant to be a whole life activity. It doesn't end when service ends. It's important that we come. It's important because as the people of God gather, we are reminded of who it is we worship. But we are to carry this out into the world that He places us. That worship needs to fill our entire lives because it's in worship that you then begin to connect with God and you begin to see how God's love is at work in your life, even in your workaday world, even in your home, even in your social life, even in your leisure and off times. That He is there for us. This woman suddenly realizes this is not an ordinary man. He's much more than a prophet, which is why, you know, she's prompted to ask this or say this to him. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You realize something has taken place that doesn't take place elsewhere in the Gospels, very rarely. You know, for example, you read the Gospel of Mark, every time, you know, people encounter him making, doing things, miracles, he will always say, keep quiet, don't tell anyone. You know, keep it to yourself. Don't spread the word. With her, he says, I am the Savior of the world. I am God's solution to the problems we all have. And you see her reaction, right? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And the whole town came out to meet her. Uh, meet him, rather. You know, she, in her haste, the enthusiasm, can you detect it? The excitement, the consuming passion. She didn't want to be slowed down by having to carry her water back. Forget about that, you know, that's not important anymore. I've found living water. And look what happens. I, I'm, you know, skipping over that whole section on talking about the harvest and all that because that's a whole other sermon. <laughs> we'll find another time to talk about that. But in verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of that woman's testimony. And all she said was, he told me all I ever did. <laughs> and already it brought people to faith. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. It's an amazing encounter, isn't it? I mean, think about it, the uh, uh, witness of this woman, how contagious it is, you know, it reminds me of that saying that evangelism, ultimately, it's not about sales job. It's not about meeting quotas. It's, not, it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. It's a woman who had her thirst quenched, who basically said, come and drink of this water. 
You too will never thirst again. There's no need to hide. This person who knows everything about us knows me and loves me. This is the God she pointed to. See, worship is the outflow of that encounter with God. And that's where His love then connects with the fears that we have. Don't limit ourselves. Learn to live a life of worship. Learn to live worship in spirit and in truth. I conclude by pointing out this. You know, years ago there was a trend in uh, churches where um, because of a big mega church in the US, we started uh, seeing a lot of churches move towards seeker-sensitive services. Meaning that, you know, seekers are the people who are out there who are not yet Christians. Let's make sure that our services are accessible to people who are seekers. And I think, you know, it's, it's, a, good, it's a good thing to consider that and to, to have ourselves not put the barrier so high that a visitor walks in and they have no idea what's going on. But the problem is calling people seekers is they misunderstand what's going on. Jesus told the woman, the Father is seeking true worshippers. That at the end of the day, the real seeker is God Himself. You know, the verse that came before the passage that we read, verse 4 says, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He was headed from Galilee to Jerusalem. And if you look on the map geographically, yes, that would have been the shortest line. But if you know culturally how things took place, Jews being Jews because they had wanted nothing to do with Samaritans whom they believe had adulterated the religion. You know, religious Jews, God-fearing Jews often would take a different route. The common route for them would have bypassed Samaria. And you can see from this encounter, you know, not only this woman came to faith, the entire village came to faith, more or less. It's in a demonstration of God seeks out those who are lost. Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. In Luke's uh, Gospel, chapter 19, when he met with Zacchaeus, that's what he pointed out. That's his mission. What does it mean for us? Let me end with this invitation which Jesus himself made later on in John chapter 7. This idea of living water resurfaces. On the last day of the feast, that great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. On the last day of the feast, what feast? It was the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the Feast of the Booths where they recognize the final harvest that's to be brought in. And one picture that he's pointing to, because on the final day, the high priest would go to the pole of Siloam and would gather up a, a container of water, walk into the temple at the altar and begin to pour water from the temple. And it flows out of the temple into the land. And it's really a, a, a pointing to the prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 47 of the river of God that flows from the temple out into the land and basically brings life wherever it goes. That Jesus is saying the river of life can flow out not from a physical temple anymore, but from each and every one of us 
who is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That this river of life, you know, He invites us if we would believe in Him. And what is it? Verse 39 continues. John tells us, This He said about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That this river of life is the Holy Spirit that will quench every thirst that we have. Not only that, not just for ourselves, but to quench the thirst of the land all around us, the people all around us. The people that God has put us in contact with. People has called us to for such a time as this. Some of you are old like me. You probably couldn't read the text properly because <laughs> that one was a nice design, but the text was very small. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Worshipping in spirit and in truth. In spirit means that it is a gift from God. Because God is spirit. He gives us the ability to worship Him. He connects with us. He shows us His love. And we receive and we respond to that love. That's where worship starts. But worship is also in truth, in that we do not need to hide from Him. That we come to Him just as we are. And He welcomes us with open arms. I didn't put this text up there, but you know, it was read from Romans chapter 5. And just let me read it for you as we end and hear it because it expresses God's immense love for us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? Come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we come before your throne of grace and we acknowledge our thirst that we have been trying so hard to quench that thirst in so many different ways. And yet you have shown us time and time again that Lord, the source of our quenching is the water that comes from you living water, rivers of living water. 
And Lord, we want to put ourselves in a place to believe and to receive once again. Father, you have been seeking us and we want to come as true worshippers, worshipping you in spirit and in truth. Take us, Lord, as we are. Mould us, make us, turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh once again. Give us the courage to respond to your call. Not to try and bury who you are in a certain area of our life so that it's kept separate from the rest of our lives. But Lord, may this river of life which flows through us come out of the overflow of our lives so that not just we will be blessed, but all those around us will be blessed as well. Holy Spirit, come. Breathe on us afresh. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.